I'm Katie Freeman. I am the host of the Maker Mom podcast, which is a podcast that has two weekly episodes. You're watching slash listening to the Wednesday episode, which is the Wonder Women episode, focuses on female and non-binary makers of all kinds. And then uh, Friday episodes is focused on interviewing other moms who are makers. All right, so this week's Wonder Women episode is with Emma Hardy. She is a lyrist, which means a, and I think I'm saying that right, which means she makes violins and she is located over uh, in London currently. And so we had a fantastic talk about, you know, the history of violin making and learning that craft, her journey into uh, starting to make violins and where she kind of came from her background. And so I think you're going to absolutely love this interview with her. But before we jump into that, I want to give a big shout out and thank you to the patrons over on Patreon. So thank you so much, Laura of the Oakley Soap Company, Mary Lou, made by Mary Lou, Amy, Bison Valley Carving, Dan and Kelly, sorry I have my cheat list over here, Dan and Kelly of Reclaim Living Store, Brandy, Studio Obey, Kathy, One Girl and Her Tools, Ellen, Little Bear Furniture, and Ethan, Ethan Carter Designs. Make sure you hang out to the end of the episode uh, to find out more about the podcast itself and how you can continue to support the podcast if you are loving it. All right, with no further ado, here is Emma. have my guest uh, give an introduction about themselves so if you don't mind we can start there. Sure uh, so my name is Emma Hardy and I am a violin maker sort of in training I've just finished my third year of studying <laughs> um, so I'm kind of making that transition now into not being a student anymore um, but Covid did put a little bit of spanner in the works with that so I'm probably going to go back for another year, but just a day a week to just sort of brush up on, on a couple of things that I, I've missed out on since March. Um, so yeah, uh, since kind of January, I've had my own workspace um, and been, been starting to make that kind of transition. Um, and I live in London. Um, yeah, been here about seven years. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. Okay, awesome. <laughs> um, well, did you grow up in London? Um, no, okay. No, so I, I moved around a bit, but I started off in the south of England, down, um, I guess, the nearest place that you might have heard of is Brighton. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so kind of one of the seaside towns near Brighton. And then when I was about 10 years old, my parents um, bought a completely derelict house in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and moved us all. And we lived in a caravan next to it while they spent, I mean, they kind of had it, they did it room by room. So we, we, we were ostensibly moved in after about five years. <laughs> um, but the bathroom didn't really get finished until I was at university. <laughs> Because <laughs> my parents both worked full time and they were sort of just doing it around that. So that was a bit of an adventure. Um, I think where I got some of my handiness because I would help with like putting down floors and putting up sheds and, and things. I was going to say, it totally makes sense when you <laughs> mentioned <laughs> yeah. that, 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 that you get into some sort of making. Yeah. Um, yeah. How many siblings do you have? Uh, I just have the one brother who has just finished a master's and he's he's going to be moving in with me actually um, coming down to London. He's been in Manchester. Um, but yeah, uh, job market pretty bad at the moment. So he's going to come crash with, with me and my husband for, for a bit while he's figuring it all out. So that'll gotcha. be nice to have him around. We're quite close. So, so nice. nice. Very nice. Um, all right. So sounds like you got at least an introduction to making. <laughs> 
wild. Um, did you play the violin as a kid? I did, yeah. I started playing when I was um, around seven or eight. But then I had quite, when we moved, I then didn't get a new teacher um, sort of until I was about 13. Uh, and then I only I gave it up when I was 16. So I was not, not a very dedicated player as a child. Um, but I took it up again just before I started violin making. Um, and I'm still having lessons every weekend and I still play. And I play, normally would be playing in an orchestra, um, obviously mm -hmm. hold at the moment. Um, so yeah, it's not a complete, you don't have to play the violin in order to make them, um, but obviously it helps. Uh, and I think the players, it sort of comforts the players that you're selling to if they know that you, you play yourself. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, no violin, but I played the viola from oh, cool. grade four all the way through uh, oh, grade 12. Um, however, I seldom ever practiced, and so, <laughs> and so I was not fantastic by right. any means, and yeah. I definitely haven't played since high school. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to pick up the viola sometime, but I'm trying to um, make myself get better at violin first before I switch over because I think it's with musical instruments it's so easy to just get to a certain point and then start yeah. switching between them because the mm -hmm. fun bit is that initial couple of years where you're getting to grips with it. Um, but then making the transition into from like beginner to advanced takes right. that like really tough hard work. So that's, <laughs> yes. that's the bit I'm in at the moment. And it's really easy to just go, well, maybe, maybe I should pick up the viola. That would be fun. Um, but yeah, I think uh, maybe in the next couple of years, I'll, I'll, have, I'll make myself a viola. And, uh, there you go. I, I mean, <laughs> I was never... I was never a fan of the violin just because of the pitch. Yeah, um, it is. It is tough. <laughs> um, so I I enjoyed the viola because it is a little bit more. But I really wanted to play cello. That's what uh, I really wanted to play was cello. It's never um, too late. I know, <laughs> but it is a lot harder now mm, with yeah. like kids and yeah. all that stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah, I can totally understand. <laughs> Maybe it could um, be a retirement project. There you go. Probably <laughs> retirement. I have found, you know, I thought um, after high school, I really did because I never, I never enjoyed practicing. I think kind of what you're, kind of what you're getting at too of like, I don't find the fun in perfecting, you know, yeah, that right. craft. Um, yeah. yeah, they're like playing the same scale 50 yes. times over yes. for an hour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that. <laughs> Um, and so I thought, you know, well, maybe I'm just not really into music, but we uh, started um, our, our oldest, um, my son, into piano lessons. And mm -hmm. my wife has never played a musical instrument. And so she's like, you have to help him because you can <laughs> actually like read music and, you know, and that, and, and I've never played a piano ever. Yeah. But I found it. Yeah, they're yeah, different. Yeah. totally different clefs from a, yeah. <laughs> from a viola. But um, I did. I have found kind of that spark of like you know, it's fun because I kind of get to learn with him mm, through yeah. helping him. Um, yeah. And so it's like, yeah. oh, this isn't as hard as I thought it you know necessarily <laughs> would be. Type thing. Yeah, I think it's really daunting, isn't it, when when you go from not having any exposure to it. Um, but that's really cool that, that your son is having a go at it. Um, yeah, he's he wants to. I mean, the way we talked him into piano was learn to read music, play piano, so you can get to guitar. That's really yeah, what cool. he wants to get to. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. There's children's instruments is um, definitely an area. I'm actually working on um, a half size violin at the moment, so it's nice. a children's violin. Yeah. Um, it's kind of where I would like to go into is is producing children's instruments because um, there aren't. I mean, there are there are some amazing makers producing instruments for children, but it's definitely not the priority of lots of makers. Um, right. And I think that there's just such a need for really good quality instruments for, for children that they can rent rather than buying, because obviously buying a, a, an instrument made by a violin maker outright is <laughs> not that you want to yeah. when your kid's growing out of it every six months. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, I never, I never owned my own viola we rented all the way yeah. through and um, i think yeah that's i worked in a music shop for a while and it always seemed to kind of surprise parents when you told them you can just rent 
a violin. You don't have to buy an awful 80 pound one off Amazon that it's just going to be terrible and your kid is never going to play it and it's just going to be really traumatic for everybody right. involved. You can just rent something that's actually quite good and it's not going to cost, like, I, and there are loads of charities out there as well that do also help with um, people who are, who are from backgrounds where the cost of renting a violin is, is, is a lot too. So uh, yeah, I kind of what what I'm interested in is broadening the, the knowledge about that and that there is so much that the parents can access and, and to try and make it seem less daunting because it's right. daunting. Now in England, so like in, in the States, we have almost every school has at least band. Um, not every school has orchestra, but okay. the ones that do usually start around grade four or five to start through the school system so but in England do you I mean is it done through school systems or is it all on your own if you're gonna learn if you're gonna um, play an instrument this is a, a big source of contention at the moment in the UK because historically the music education has been fairly good um but we've had massive amounts of cuts over the last 10 years to all of the arts and mm -hmm. um, music and art and woodworking and, and all of those things have just been completely um well, not, not completely gone, but really, really reduced. Um, so a lot of it has fallen to parents to pay for privately, um, which, yeah, just just doesn't really make sense to me. Because like you say, having an orchestra, and, and orchestras, they're normally, it's like what you, you would do it in a lunchtime, um, mm -hmm. and there's it's definitely not a priority in, in a lot of schools. There are, you know, there are music teachers out there who, who are just who tried the absolute best that they can within the limited budgets that they're right. given and the time and the schedule but yeah quite often in schools now in the secondary school um which you know could have a thousand children in it there'll be like one music teacher um, <laughs> so it's just yeah, you know it's not realistic to expect no. that um all of the students are going to have great access to music in that situation um, so yeah, but primary schools are having some primary schools um, allocate their budget in a way that means that every kid learns, I think it's like piano, cello or violin um, oh. for a year um, and they'll have like maybe lessons in pairs or, or something mm -hmm. like that for half an hour a week. So it, it, it just varies massively depending on the area and the funding of the school. Um, but yeah, it's something I think that lots of people are, are trying to campaign about and improve. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I do think that is similar to here in the sense of cuts continue to happen to the arts and the education system. Yeah. Um, and it gets and it, harder and harder for. And it, it just makes, it makes no sense because the, you know, the arts industries are massive and, music industry is massive um, and there's sort of yeah the, the attitude that um it's the academic subjects that are the ones that are going to get you a job uh just is it doesn't well, make any sense to me and, it, and it's crazy too because especially you know um starting our oldest out uh in piano you know his uh and we pay for private lessons for him but his piano instructor you know said like he is really good at like math math is like the thing he excels at and she's like math and music go hand in yeah. hand yeah. and so like he'll excel even more now at math and yeah absolutely you know. yeah yeah i hear that a lot that they that lots of people who are good at math are also really good at music mm -hmm. um and it would be you know if it, if somebody is pursuing maths my husband studied maths and um you know knowing how incredibly hard he works I think you know it's nice for for people who are really academic to have even a, an outlet through mm -hmm. music even if it's they're not going to be their career um, right. I think we we massively undervalue the the creative um sort of output that people can have just even as a hobby um mm -hmm. exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> um so besides your you know experience of basically renovating your house <laughs> my parents are gonna your listen to this do, yeah. <laughs> they're gonna listen to this and be like you have massively overplayed how much you helped <laughs> well even i mean but even getting that exposure right, right. to that yeah. going on um yeah. did you do any other woodworking before making violins <laughs> no not not really no i i we had um we call it dt wood in school which i think is the equivalent of wood shop 
for mm-hmm. you guys, um, that I think I had like an hour a week for one term in secondary school. Uh, and I think I made the world's worst puzzle. I don't know, it was <laughs> something terrible. It <laughs> didn't fit together. Um, <laughs> so I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't think uh, woodworking honestly was not on my radar um, until I started this uh, started studying violin making um but I so before doing this I was working as a book cover designer um Mm. and my my degree was in animation which had quite a lot of um crafting because you make the puppets and and things Mm -hmm. like that so I, I did know that I could I could do stuff with my hands and um was good at making things uh and woodworking had appealed to me but I just I just never gotten in like had an opportunity to do anything with it um, and so I was working as a freelance book cover designer, knowing that I kind of wanted to find something else because it was much more computer based than I thought it was going to be. Uh, and was driving me a bit insane. <laughs> and uh, I enrolled on a hobby course in Cambridge that I just went to on weekends for a little while in violin making. Um, and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I just love it. Um, and so then enrolled on the formal course in London, um, which yeah, I've been doing for the last three years. Uh, and yeah, it's it's definitely the right decision. It's I just love it so much. It's mm-hmm. great. But it sounds like I mean, with like you said, you uh, majored in um, animation, so mm-hmm. a drive to creativity as yeah. a path of um, career. It sounds like yeah, definitely. And I think um, I think in an, in another world. I would have been very happy as like a puppet maker or something. But during my degree, I just sort of got a bit sidetracked. Um, everything was about computer animation was becoming a really big thing. Um, and so our tutors were, were kind of pushing us towards that because there were more jobs and, and all of that. And I didn't really stop to think about what it was that I enjoyed about mm-hmm. the animating. And it was definitely the like, 3D stuff, and I just didn't really realize that until I had sort of gone down the wrong path. Uh, well, I mean, that's kind of hard to realize that stuff in your <laughs> yeah. early 20s, right, late, yeah. te- late yeah. teens, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I really figured it out even until, yeah, like I was I was working as a graphic designer, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh wait, it's the being of the computer that is the thing that is not fun here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, yeah, I guess... But my my family are all very kind of creative. Um, So obviously my parents did did all the stuff at the house, but my mum also, she originally studied fashion and and textiles and made all of her own clothes. And um, my grandmother, well, my grandmother's on both sides, actually. My my grandma on my dad's side does a huge amount of ceramics. And then my grandmother on my mum's mother's side was an amazing embroiderer um, and kind of maker of all sorts of things uh my aunt does stained glass work um so yeah there there are a lot of of makers in the family so I think Mm -hmm. um that that also kind of meant that I was exposed to lots of people making things and and so it didn't sound (laughs) too crazy to them when I was like yeah I think I'm gonna quit my 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 steady job as a book cover designer and uh learn this ancient craft that um nobody's ever heard of Um, to get to that, like, did you feel like you were crazy when you made that decision? A, a bit. I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it felt, it felt like, I still occasionally I'm like, oh my God, is this, was this the right thing to do in terms of my finances? But, right. um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, I'm just starting out. So, it, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is scary and it would be scary no matter what I was doing when, when you're at this point, when you're making that first leap into the professional realm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not, yeah, I, I was, I was scared, but not, not in like a, I shouldn't do it way, just in a like, this is kind of exciting and a bit scary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't, so I am going to fully admit, I know nothing about making a violin or a musical <laughs> instrument. I think 99% of the population <laughs> would be with you there. Besides, besides like, I mean, I've, I've watched content around making them because I do, I do think there's something beautiful about it. Um, I don't know necessarily violin, but definitely making of like an acoustic guitar has me intrigued, Um, you know, stuff like that. 
it's something that I want to do at some point in time in my oh. life for sure. Um, but I want to know, I guess on the, on the career side, it's my understanding. I mean, like you are your own artist, like this will be your, like you're not working for, is that correct? Or, yeah, or, or is that out there? I don't know, I guess. Like, um, the, the vast, vast majority of violin makers work for themselves. There's a sort of, um, within, so everybody who trains as a violin maker will also get a bit of, will likely get a bit of training in violin repair work. And repair work is often the sort of bread and butter of, mm -hmm. of most makers, but not, not all of them. Um, and so some people, if they are not suited to working on their own, will go and work in a repair shop. Um, or if they just want the extra training that comes with going and working in a repair shop, because obviously then you're surrounded by people who've been working, doing it for like 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, violin making is definitely one of those things that you never really stop learning. Um, and so if you can position yourself in a shop, then you'll, you'll get vast amounts of knowledge from doing that. Um, but that's not for everyone, and I don't, I don't think I'm going to go and do that because I don't enjoy the repair stuff as much, at least mm -hmm. what I've done of it. Um, but that's sort of what I'm going to be going back to college a day a week to do is to just brush up on my repair work because I, I haven't done so much of that. Um, so I, yeah, my my intention is to strike out on my own, um, and I really like working on my own. It mm -hmm. suits me quite well. Um, I like the flexibility that comes with it, and um, yeah, just having your own space and mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think that it, yeah, it definitely suits me. I'm not sure if it would have suited me when I first, you know, when you're like 18, I imagine right. it would be very difficult to, to go straight into it. Um, but having worked in offices, learned how to mm -hmm. have a schedule and how to, to work to deadlines and how to communicate with customers and all of that stuff, I, can't, I do feel like I have that experience that maybe the younger violin makers who go into repair workshops that's what mm -hmm. they're learning there as well um I kind of feel like I already have that and so then really what I just need to do is is get good at making um mm -hmm. so um yeah yeah the intention is to is to just work for myself and that's yeah most most people who just focus on making work for themselves okay um so does that mean do you generally have a customer before you make or do you make and then you know basically um, look for customers to buy what you make when so the the dream in the end is to have a very long waiting list of people <laughs> who just cannot wait to get their hands on one of your instruments um <laughs> and you know that you've got work for the next three years um which the more established makers tend to have uh, but when you're starting out you make them and then you try and get someone to buy them um, so yeah, that's why I'm also particularly interested in producing children's instruments to rent them because mm -hmm. I can kind of make them at my own pace and rent them out. Um, and you know, while it'll take a couple of years for the money to recoup for that, once it is set up, hopefully then I have quite a nice passive mm -hmm. income that I can then concentrate on maybe making much more detailed. Um, so, so there's kind of different levels of violin making you can make a violin quite quickly or mm -hmm. you can spend a year on one and obviously there'll be differences in quality and the craftsmanship that mm -hmm. goes with those and there are competitions that happen all over the world that people enter and um the the level of of work that goes into those instruments for competitions is just astonishing so yeah ideally one day you know if i have some passive income set up i could spend my time making the really really good quality stuff mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm just going to kind of see how it goes. And so out as I go so the dream is that one day there is the Emma J. Hardy <laughs> violin <laughs> that everybody wants to have, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, is, that, is that your dream legacy then too? Like, you know, yeah, once, think... once you're gone, like... Everyone will be like, oh my God, it's an Emma J. Hardy violin. Yeah, I mean, that would be very nice. <laughs> um, but I, I think also just being producing instruments that, that uh, 
function for the duration that the musician need them to and and a long lasting but it's one of the things i definitely really love about violins is that they last hundreds of years if they're looked right. after properly and made properly um so yeah that that is a, a nice prospect to to think that the the things i'm making will hopefully outlive me um right. and uh every time i i kind of come across an old instrument with a maker's name in it and you know you know that it was hundreds years hundreds of years ago it, it is really amazing mm-hmm. um like i've got a, a child's violin that i bought in an auction recently hanging up here that's from 1820 oh. um and I just think, like, why else in my house do I have that's from 1820? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I, I love that, it, it, yeah, it's, like, something that that lots of people can have access to that's, like, old and a bit special. Mm-hmm. Um, that, it, yeah, it kind of gets this second um, lease of life later. You know, it starts off as a nice new instrument that someone has commissioned or bought that is really special to them. And then as it's passed down through the generations, it gains history and, and it just mm-hmm. keeps, keeps kind of growing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to ask you probably a question that really will show I know nothing. What type of wood are is violin, are violins made from? This is like the number one question I get I asked know. at parties. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, that would be me not knowing anything about it. No, <laughs> um, so the, the back, the sides and the neck are made from spruce, uh, maple, sorry, God, made from maple, <laughs> maple, okay. um, and then the front is spruce, um, okay. and uh, so the idea is that the maple forms like a, a it's, it's um, more solid, so it's less, yep. like, yep. Um, vibrates less, mm-hmm. uh, and then, so it's kind of like, if you imagine a drum, you have the, the hard sides and then the calf skin yep. on the top, the spruce is kind of acting as the calf skin, um, is my understanding. Um, and then the bridge, which is the bit that holds the mm-hmm. strings up in the middle, um, that's also maple. Uh, the fingerboards are normally ebony and then the fittings are, are often ebony as well, but they vary a little bit. Um, so yeah, there's there's all sorts of maple. If you kind of look at lots of islands, you'll see that, that no one violin looks the same on the back of them because you can get different types of flames and... Um, there's like bird's eye maple and which yeah. you, you probably come across in oh yeah yeah, uh, yeah i mean there's just and there's all very there's actually quite a few species of maple as well right um like there's sugar maple which is not as hard as oh, um okay. you know like a, a silver maple um mm. so <laughs> there's okay. varying okay. types of, of uh maple wood and then they have tend to have different to your point like different effects like you know, bird's eye maple, mm-hmm. which really is not a species of maple. It's just the mm-hmm. effect that yeah, moisture comes, and all of yeah, that yeah, had on the yeah. wood. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, that won't necessarily happen to every species of maple. Okay. You know what I mean? Because there's yeah, yeah, different, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, different yeah. densities and all that. But that mm-hmm. I didn't know that because they're all stained as well. Yeah. Like I would never have guessed that it was maple. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, I sometimes get people commenting like friends and stuff that are like, why are you making a white violin? And I'm just like, oh, that's just the color before they're, yeah. before they're stained. Um, I don't know why we stain them. Uh, that was something I've been trying to find out. So if uh, anyone is listening and, and has a better understanding of violin making history than me, um, yeah, I'd love to know where that started. And because um, I think lots of Baroque, violins were not stained or precursors to the violin were mm-hmm. not so i don't know why it why it started so, all right so to get today's podcast episode is sponsored by bad workwear north america they are an australian-based workwear brand that launched in the u.s and canada last fall now i haven't tried their gear yet myself but have heard great things about their gear from our friends in the maker community especially women who are excited to find workwear that looks great and fits right. They carry a woman's line of items, but based on the slim fit of uh, all their clothing, all their line is considered unisex as women have great success just sizing down in the men's items and getting a great fit. If you want to check them out, visit www.badnorthamerica.com and use the code MAKERMOM10 at checkout 
to get 10% off your order. All right, let's head back into the episode. Um, but yeah. So that, uh, that means you could totally <laughs> shake up the industry and start making like teal yeah. violins, right? Like you could totally. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the violin making industry, I think, is possibly the most conservative industry that has ever existed. Um, I don't think, yeah, it, that's been interesting as well to try and um, sort of dis- discover the boundaries of the industry and, and try and figure out which, which boundaries you might want to try and break and which ones you definitely don't want to cross. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, I guess that was going to be my next question. So, like, you're describing all the components of the violin and what types of wood they're made from. I'm assuming over time, you know, because people have been making violins for hundreds of years, <laughs> that they've tried out different species of, of wood to see what yeah. works best. But then even to that, like, is somebody in Canada who's making violins using those same species as you are in the UK? Like, is it across yeah. the industry? Yeah, so you're right that people have experimented. Um, I think pear gets used sometimes. We also, so the inside of the violin, there are a few things that could sort of keep the structure together mm-hmm. um, that traditionally is spruce, but sometimes people use willow. Um, so definitely on the inside of the violin, people have a, are more likely to vary the wood that they're using. Um, but yeah, none, none of, it's just spruce and maple, um, basically everywhere. Some makers do, do produce stuff. I think um, violins that are for the folk music um, players are slightly more likely to, to be made from different woods, I've, I've heard, but I'm not, I don't know very much about mm-hmm. that. Um, and I think it's just tradition. Uh, the, although I guess with, with maple, it does have, you know, unusual qualities and it, it's hardness, but it's not super heavy. And um, so I think that that probably helps. It also just looks really nice. Um, so. I guess I just, I mean, to, in my head as a woodworker, I'm going walnut to me would be just as sturdy as like a maple. Yeah, and, I, and to me, the same weight. You know, mm-hmm. like if I was to get it down to the thinness right. of a violin. But um, I wonder if the density would vary. Mm-hmm. I don't, but this is the thing is I, I have literally, I've just worked with maple and spruce, so right. I can't, I don't really know so much about the other woods. I've been really interested to try, I want to try and make a child's violin using ash for the back, um, mm-hmm. because it's, sim- I looked up the densities and they're fairly similar, but it's more flexible, because traditionally they were used to make wheels out of, um, because mm-hmm. they're so springy. So you can right. like throw, it, throw them at the ground and they'll bounce without snapping. And mm-hmm. so my theory is, if you make a child's violin out of that, when they drop it, it won't crack. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't tried it yet, so I don't know how it would sound. And also, yeah, I don't know if with a child's violin, which isn't going to sound as nice as a full-size anyway, because it doesn't have the air volume, maybe you could be a bit more experimental with, mm-hmm. with So that, that is definitely an area I want to get into. But yeah, to, to answer your question, basically all violin makers will, will mostly just use, use those. But everybody has different tonewood suppliers, so there will be variations in this kind of, yeah, the species, how it's grown. Yep. Uh, Violin makers prefer wood that's grown um, very high up and very slowly, um, generally. So, so old growth is that yeah. usually yeah. what they're going for? Yeah, yeah. You kind of want it to, to I guess, because it's it's like much more dense. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so the but even within that, some violin makers will vary it in what they prefer to have. So that's what it'll vary within the maple mm-hmm. and spruce. Um, and I have noticed actually at, at the last couple of events I've been at with lots of violin makers, lots of people are starting to to talk about using much more plain wood for the backs um, than, than has traditionally been used. Uh, I haven't quite figured out whether that's just a fashion within violin makers, but yeah, I had like five people separately go, yeah, I like plain wood. I, I think I'm gonna use more plain wood now. Um, so I, I think that maybe that's something that more violin makers are experimenting with. I haven't figured out why yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, to your point, you were talking about like, what will the, the kind of the market take? Um, but I mean, when's the last time there was a revolution within like the design of, you know, the violin? Like 200. 
300 years ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah Strad- Stradivari was, mm-hmm. I think, probably the last the last one you could point to because he, he experimented with, um, so before Stradivari, the, the next most famous maker was Amati. Um, and yeah, Stradivari really like shook things up a bit. Um, and, but I mean, even then, if you, if I showed you the two violins, you would probably go, they look the same. <laughs> so it's in the so, sound, right? Um, I mean, that's yeah, where yeah. the changes yeah. are. Although, having said that, actually, <laughs> when we moved from the Baroque period to the more classical periods, um, the neck was reset and changed slightly. So um, very, very old violins have a slightly shorter neck with, I gotta get this right, I think a higher projection, but I'm not totally good on my Baroque setup. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the, so, and then also the fingerboards were often made of maple back then as well. So a Baroque violin does look fairly different from a modern mm-hmm. violin within reason. Um, mm-hmm. It still looks like a violin. But right. yeah, yeah, I think um, the biggest sort of changes are more around how we make them. Um, so there's quite a lot happening now with people experimenting with like CNC machining um, that does like the initial roughing for mm-hmm. you. Um, I haven't I haven't done any of that, but yeah. And I know that like when they're being mass produced in like China, mm-hmm. they have machines that can do the scrolls. Um, so yeah, the, there's like developments coming in, in how we're making them. And I think particularly in repair work, that's quite exciting because you can do stuff like if you have a crack um, or like a, yeah, a break in a violin, you can do a 3D scan of the break and then produce, uh, get a computer to mm-hmm. cut out a piece of wood that perfectly fits it, which you, you know, is then doing a job better than a traditional craftsperson. Whereas with the making stuff, like you can't at the moment automate uh, what a violin maker can do better on a computer. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I think think people are, are worrying a bit about the com- <laughs> the machines coming that way, but I think really what they'll just do is is aid in the same way as power tools. Lots of people mm-hmm. use power tools in their making, and it's not going to replace us. It'll just be a tool that we learn to use. Exactly. Um, I uh, had another uh, a maker on here that I would say is a fine woodworker. Um, Laura Mays, and we talked about the difference, you know, between hand tools and power tools. And you definitely have hand tool purists, like they're yeah. not going to use a power tool ever. Um, and she said, you know, it took her time, but she eventually basically came to the realization of like, is there a difference between me using a hand saw and like a circular saw if I'm getting the same cut? in yeah. you know a quarter of the time no there's yeah. not um, <laughs> yeah. so so just yeah, understanding where it is more beneficial for the piece to use something that has more of that finesse yeah um <clears throat> you know i don't know yeah i, to- I totally agree and the in violin making it's exactly the same you have people who are complete purists about never never using power tools um and i think if that for me you know part of the joy of being a violin maker is the making. So if you don't mm-hmm. enjoy using power tools, then fine, right. don't use them. Right. <laughs> so, right. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't really use them, but that's been because I'm absolutely terrified of them. Um, but I did recently just buy myself a, uh, a belt sander, which was a big, a big mm-hmm. step for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. It just saves me so much time. And like you say, you get the same result. So I think as well, if, particularly if you've already learned how to do it by hand, there is mm-hmm. no harm in using power tools to help you if you're getting the same result. I would maybe in violin making push people to learn how to do it by hand first, just because you like have a better understanding of what you're doing in some contexts, but not all. I um, think I think in, it's similar, especially if you aspire to be what I would call a fine woodworker, right? Mm-hmm. Who is it is much more of a piece of furniture from a fine woodworker is definitely probably 60% about the actual craft of making that piece uh, and 40% about the design. In my mind, you know, you're purchasing that and enjoying the understanding of the craftsmanship that went into it. Mm. Um, So I would say in that realm, it's the same, like being able to do it all by hand. Um, That's my, that's my co-host. Yes. (laughs) There's, there's another one around here somewhere. (laughs) 
<laughs> love it. Yes. Two, two kitten co-hosts. Um, <laughs> Ideal. <laughs> yes. But it was the same when I did, uh, when I did do some woodworking schooling, um, the professor I had there, uh, we didn't have to perfect doing it by hand, but we did learn how to do everything by hand before we went to the power tool. So yeah, yeah, I think but, it's a good way because it also yeah. just gives you a bit of like time to adjust to what you're doing anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, um, I think, yeah, I'm not super against power tools if people, people enjoy using them. Um, I think, I think you learn more about, uh, things like wood movement and stuff mm, when you mm. do it all with by hand. Yeah, yeah, like the hand grain. tools first. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that is a massive part with violin making. It's all about like understanding the piece of wood you're working with and the grain direction. And um, so I think that that yeah, that definitely is important. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe one day I'll uh, build up to getting a bandsaw. But <laughs> at college, my my workbench is right next to the bandsaw, and it, honestly, it makes me feel sick when people use it. I have to like, I have to move away. I hate it so much. I just can't. I can't believe that anybody isn't going to chop their hand off. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really awful uh, with I, that. Maybe I can make you feel a little bit better. It's not totally impossible to hurt yourself on a bandsaw. I will say that. Not totally impossible, but it's very rare. Yeah, <laughs> that somebody know, actually yeah. hurts himself. Yeah, I mean, like, in three <laughs> and I've seen, seen some people who not, like, totally yeah. convinced that they're the safest people on it, and they still haven't managed to hurt themselves. Yes. And we get, like, safe <laughs> training, and our tutor does, like, yes. what we call a driving test where you're not allowed to use it until yep. he can observe you using it safely on your own. So I've done all of that. I can use them. I just, it just makes me, like, feel ill, so I just don't, don't do it. I, I get it. I have the, I, I still, my, my router, my big router, mm -hmm. um, uh, it's uh, one of those, like, it's a last resort. I'm on a tight deadline. I have to have use to, it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, but, so, yeah, it's something I definitely, I do want to, to like get over that. Um, cause also I would eventually like to have a go at making some furniture and, um, that kind of thing. And I, I just think there's like, no getting around, you know, if you've got massive sheets of stuff, I just like, I would definitely want to use power tools. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, I, the belt sander is a start. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. You just brought up, you know, maybe getting like eventually getting into like furniture or something like that. So do you think making violins is more about the love of violin making or more about the love of making something with your hands? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I really like the, I mean, furniture is functional. So I'm not, I would say that with violins, there's something really magical about a musician taking it out of your hand and playing with it. Um, which, you know, I'm sure people, when people are using your, like as a dining room table that right. a family takes, I can imagine there's like a similar feeling. Um, so I think, yeah, I think I would also enjoy being a furniture maker. Um, but I also really love all of the history that goes with the violin making, um, all of the, yeah, like it, it just feels like there's a never ending pile of stuff to learn about. Um, mm -hmm. So that's why, yeah, I think one day I would also like to move into furniture stuff, but um, you have the two sides of the violin making, which is mm -hmm. the, the making and then the, the musicians. Um, so mm -hmm. that does really appeal to me. Um, so I think, yeah, uh, the furniture making stuff would be, I think more of on a hobby basis. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, you know, I have no idea how to do joints and stuff because like <laughs> you can do them in violins uh, yeah. or like you have the neck joint, but that's not like, I don't think it's like any joint you would do in yeah. furniture making. Um, so I would, I would maybe do an evening course or something in, yeah, in yeah. furniture making one day, but it would just be furniture for myself, I think. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, that feels like a whole other it would feel like a career change, I think. It's, it's like such a big difference. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But um, uh, yeah, uh, I think furniture making does look, I think particularly chair making appeals to mm -hmm. me. I'm not sure why, um, but yeah. Probably chair. because it's one of the most difficult things to make. Is it? Oh, chair. no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds about right. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, I, yeah, chairs, 
like every time I go past furniture shops, like antique furniture shops and stuff, I'm always just like, oh God, look at all those chairs. Um, I would fill my house with chairs if, if it wouldn't bankrupt me. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, it definitely feels like over the last, I don't know, five to 10 years, there's definitely been a resurgence of handmade goods being, you know, valued more than like what you can just go purchase off the shelf somewhere. Has that resurgence transferred over to your craft? Like, do you feel like there's more people interested in learning the craft and, and making them? Yeah, people are calling this the new golden age of violin making um, within the industry. There was a bit of a, a lull in the sort of post-war to um, kind of late 90s. Um, well, there were there were people making and training and, and selling instruments, but it definitely wasn't anything like it had been mm-hmm. before the war. Um, and yeah there was all of this kind of mass manufacturing was just getting started um importing from other countries and so i think the industry suffered quite a lot at that point um but yeah people are now starting again um it's becoming much more widely accepted for musicians in orchestras to play on new instruments because there has been a bit of a stigma for a little while um where everybody wants to be playing a 400 year old instrument um but the all the investment bankers have kind of priced everybody out of those <laughs> really nice <laughs> instruments um, so um so they're not as accessible and so musicians turned back to luthiers um and realized that there are lots of makers making excellent instruments um uh, that can easily as well be adapted to modern day concert halls because you you need them you design them slightly differently depending on whether they're going to be played in a chamber orchestra and they need to blend in with everybody or whether it's a soloist instrument that just needs like a massive amount of power to get to the back of the hall um and so actually there's there's a huge amount of benefit there for for musicians to commission instruments directly um and while it's not cheap it's definitely cheaper than buying a strat (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so yeah it's it's kind of having a bit of a boom and there are so there are two main schools in the uk teaching violin making the one i go to in london we have maybe 15 students um across the three year groups and then the bigger one and the more well-known one is newark um which is kind of north um and although they're going to tell me off for saying they're, not, they're like the Midlands. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and they, but you know, everything's north of London. Yeah. So, um, uh, and they have, I think it's about, I think they produce about 30 in each year group. So mm. like, but, but I'm not totally yeah. sure on that complete, but they're definitely bigger. Um, and they get a lot of international students coming in because um, it's a degree course, whereas mine is, is not, um, it's just traditionally been like portfolio based. Um, so the one in Newark can take, it can sponsor international students. So, um, they get lots of people from, particularly from Germany and Italy and Hmm. France. Um, so that's like really cool. Um, and yeah, there's, there's, yeah, good, good lot of violin makers being made at the moment. Um, yeah. Do you, I mean, do you feel like on the world stage that like, Europe in general is still probably predominantly where violins are being handmade or do you feel like it's everywhere? Yeah I think it is everywhere. I think Europe particularly Italian violin makers carry a lot of cash cachet like they can kind of say oh it was made in Cremona or Venice and and I think um I've heard that particularly Asian markets really like to have Italian instruments. It's like a bit of a, a, um, a status thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think <clears throat> for like the average musician, that's the case. Um, and certainly there are lots of really amazing American makers and um, South American makers, uh, like all over the world. I think it, it has really spread globally um, as a craft and, and also violin makers will communicate with each other way better now than they did a hundred years ago in terms of sharing their knowledge. It's mm-hmm. been a, quite a big push recently for everybody to, to stop kind of before it was very like in the family kind of knowledge mm-hmm. and a huge amount of knowledge was just lost um, through that way um, of behaving and it's quite timely now because obviously with COVID 
Um, it's sort of reminding everybody that uh, we had a whole bunch of families, um, family dynasties of violin makers wiped out by the plagues in, mm -hmm. I don't know what year, um, <laughs> 200 years ago. Yeah, um, yeah. And, um, you know, that that we can't, we can't have that kind of thing happening again. And there's really no, if everybody shares information, actually every, the industry does better and, mm -hmm. and everybody, everybody creates better work. So it's, it's not harmful to, to kind of, to do Right. That. It's not, it's community <laughs> over competition basically. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's definitely, um, a lot of violent makers are, are much, much better about that now. So it's a really nice time to be training because this, the, the older violin makers are all so generous with their time in my experience. Um, and yeah, I, so far I've been really enjoying the community that is, mm -hmm. exists. So is it, is it similar, in, and I'm going to apologize if this analogy is really bad, but is it similar, like you have Spain and you have like Mexico, both countries speak Spanish, but they speak different dialects of Spanish, right? Different versions of it. Is it similar in the violin making community where it's like a European, you know, some like yourself from uh, the UK, you've been taught a certain way of making a violin and somebody in South America is basically doing a different dialect of making yeah, that's, a that is quite That's quite a good analogy, yeah. They're, yeah, so there are tons of different ways to go about making a violin and we call them, we call it a school. Um, so we, you might say the German school, which doesn't refer to a specific school. It's right. just the, the German way of making it. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so the English way, um, or British way, uh, is a bit of a mishmash of everything uh, as is our tradition. <laughs> um, and then um, Germany has a really specific way of doing it and Italy um, and different bits of Italy as well vary um, and they have very specific ways of doing things. Um, there's a, a German school uh, in Mittenwald which is really famous um, and they they like are extremely strict and have just like one way of doing everything which for for lots of people is great um but yeah over here you sort of get taught a few different ways and you just pick the one you like mm -hmm. um and um those the results mean that yeah there's there's quite a lot of variety and i think that's nice i think that um if we were all making exactly the same instrument then like it would be a bit boring than that so right um, i think there's a violin out there for everyone and it just means that you can you can like experiment and see see mm -hmm. which kind of violin you like but yeah there is definite styles um of violin making but they're still all made of maple and spruce yes <laughs> yeah i mean when i when i talk to when i talk to my dad about this stuff he's just like i mean you say they're really different but like when he's looking at them and i'm trying to be like but look at the f-holes they're completely different it's like um but yeah i mean if you look if you looked at 100 violins you start to see it it's it's like anything really it's just um repetition of like looking at it and pattern mm -hmm. recognition mm -hmm. um yeah yeah so yeah that, that was a kind of thing that analogy works <laughs> um okay so one probably last question before the end here and that is um is it typical are there a lot of women in the industry of making violins um historically no um they were not well it's a very complicated question <laughs> <laughs> historically from a customer point of view no um and in the history books no uh but my kind of informal mentor a guy called mm -hmm. ben benjamin hebert um is a really amazing historian and um dealer in violins um and he's been uncovering evidence that actually women were making violins they were just like doing it in their husband's workshop and not getting any credit <laughs> um, <laughs> makes so. total sense total sense <laughs> yeah and then, and then also there was like a bit of a quirk in in british law that meant that um when a husband died he could the, the only way that women were allowed to own their own businesses was if they took over their their, their past mm -hmm. husband, um, their business. And so there are a few cases that Ben has managed to dig out um, of women 
who have taken over their husband's violin shops. But even then, it would sort of be sold as like violins would still be sold with the label of the mm -hmm. husband in it. Um, so there's still a lot more research to be done about the historical side of it. Um, and then nowadays, uh, there are a lot more female violin makers. Um, definitely like the the schools it's almost 50 50 being trained in um but then still like not great representation in terms of owning their own like big like being the top um mm -hmm. so you get lots of particularly in repair work a lot of women seem to go into repair work over making um and i i wonder if that's to do with just like the irregularity of the income um because i was gonna of say like, like gender yeah, yeah. barriers um and so like if a woman knows that she can go and get maternity leave at a repair working yep. in a repair shop um so but i don't i there hasn't really that i'm aware of been any studies mm -hmm. in all of that so that is just kind of anecdotal i don't know you know whether how accurate that is right <laughs> right a reflection of the industry but certainly what i've seen um is that there are there are fewer and certainly when you talk about like the great violent makers of, of modern times like the majority of them will be listed as men and that's mm -hmm. not to say that there aren't great violent makers who are female right. they're just not getting as much attention but they are getting more attention than they, than they used to so it's going in the right like the right mm -hmm. direction but there's definitely more work to be done like um i won't name the name of this shop but there was um, a violin shop who um i noticed on their website had a list of who they deemed to be the 30 greatest modern makers um and they were all men so i emailed them just being like oh hey um i noticed that the whole list is men whether is there any women you could maybe add or point me in the direction of because i'm a student and it would be really great to have some female role models mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and they just and, I, and it was a, a female owner of this shop but she just replied saying women just don't make as good violence <laughs> <Whoa. laughs> <laughs> like, oh my god <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so yeah i mean and it's not true there are, there are some really amazing female makers like in, in the uk we have um a woman called helen mischerschlager who um, makes particularly good violas um so yeah, I think it's just about like getting a bit more recognition for it, mm. which is also why podcasts like yours are so amazing. <laughs> back a bit more focus. Yeah, I mean, I'm just a bit blown away by that response. Yeah, I mean, um, I was as well. I was just like, um, I don't even know what to go with. Because that. Like, I mean, I look at especially a violin and knowing string instruments. I mean out of all the string instruments out there it is probably to me one of the most delicate uh instruments yeah right. <laughs> there are and to me delicate does not scream manly brawn yeah i know it's weird isn't it yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It, it's like yeah i know but I that mean, was the thing even like in some violin making schools when they first started letting women in which I think was maybe in like the 70s. I think it wasn't that long ago. That's um, just a sad <laughs> statement that you have yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, But they, yeah, they wouldn't let women make cellos in lots of schools because they said it was like women just couldn't make cellos. It was too, too like, too big, too hard work. Couldn't do it. <laughs> so, so, yeah. There's they do know women like <laughs> made airplanes in World yeah. War II, right? I like know. they do. <laughs> oh, God. I know. Don't get me started. Don't get me started. Um, <laughs> but it, but the, the positive thing is that the industry is definitely like aware of the issues. Um, so, I, I'm quite heavily involved with the British Violin Making Association, and they're like very dedicated to making sure that like we're, we start evening the scales in this and then also there's like all the um black and ethnic minority like mm -hmm. we i mean i i have never met or seen a, a black violin maker at any of our events so like that that's a whole other area as well yep. that, that we do need to massively improve on um so yeah and i think i think the industry is definitely talking about it and, and starting to address that stuff so I, i'm hopeful but it doesn't mean that we can be like, relaxed about it has it ever did it ever make you stop and think especially since you're going out on your own to sign your violins as like e hardy versus emma hardy i mean does it yeah. Did it ever I, stop and make you pause and say, will I be 
more receptive, you know, will I be received better if it's was, not I'm known? More, yeah, I like, I mean, I never can consider that specifically just because violin, like when somebody is buying one of your instruments, they're going to meet you. So true. But I have definitely had the, like I've gone home after events and said to my husband, like, I don't know how to present myself to musicians because all of the examples are like men in suits or you know like I, I don't know what I don't know what a female violin maker wears when she sees clients you know like, <laughs> it's just like things like that that you know right. like just wear whatever you want but um yeah just like that the, there are so few role models and for like just knowing yeah like just stupid stuff like do, do I dress smart? Do I wear dungarees like I'm wearing now? Or like, <laughs> and, and then how a musician's going to respond? And, and and like there is a lot of pomp in in a lot of the way that some violin makers, some not all, some violin makers sell their violins. They, they go for the like very suave yeah. kind of approach. Um, and I don't know like how that translates. Um, so yeah, like there's there's a whole like all of that and I think I've just decided to just not worry about it and um just like gotta you just gotta be yourself and you're just you're just <laughs> going to be the violin maker for the badass violin like <laughs> yeah. violinist like forget yeah. like you know the one elitist like yeah, you're gonna yeah. be yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I, I also feel like I, one of like my big gripes with the industry is is how is like that elitism that again not all violin makers right. uh, do, but traditionally classical music has got that problem and yep. so you know like what I want to be is like the, the friendly face that um you know there's that families can come to and parents and um kind of yeah like more of the violin for the everyman yes <laughs> <laughs> well I mean I mean to your point too not just the industry of making the violins has very little <laughs> representation of people of color or any kind of minorities there's very few I could even think of uh, who play classical music who are people of color right, right. you know besides dedicated programs that are aimed at communities of color um, right. yeah and, and that, so, again I was just like reading recently those um I might be able to send you the link to it afterwards because I can't mm -hmm. remember who put it together. I think it was possibly the Royal College of Music did a diversity study um, trying to address those points, figure out what, what the issues were and how they could be tackled. So there are the, the yeah, it is, it is a problem in the industry that you cannot deny um, and definitely needs work. But there are like some really encouraging stuff coming through. There's um, various orchestras that, yeah, I guess the, the problem is, yeah, when you just have it like when it's, just like a black orchestra or whatever you, yeah. what you really ideally want is just like for there to be black musicians in an orchestra and nobody yes. is thinking an eye about it um yeah. and again i think it's going in the right direction but I, I think that there is still a huge amount of work to be done in that um and i hope i hope to to contribute to that in some way um mm -hmm. yeah yeah awesome well emma we are at the end of our time so i want to yeah, give great. you a chance though to let people know how they can find you and see yeah. your amazing work um so probably the easiest way is my instagram account which is emma hardy violins um and then also my website is emmajhardy.co.uk um yeah that's that's it really thank you awesome. so much for having yeah. me I really enjoyed this it's been great yeah. thank you for saying yes <laughs> <laughs> all right again that was emma hardy and i'll include all the links uh to follow along with emma if you're listening, it will be in the show notes. If you're watching on YouTube, then it will be down in the description below so you can make sure that you check out all of her social media and follow along with her as she works to continue uh, to start building her business as a violin maker out on her own in London. All right, now if you enjoyed this episode and you're enjoying all the other episodes of the Maker Mom podcast with the Wonder Women segment, there's a few things that you can do. So first and foremost, if whatever device or app you are listening to or watching this on, make sure that you hit subscribe. Also, uh, if you can head on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review for the podcast, that helps it get discovered. So that is greatly appreciated. And all of that, of course, is free and pretty easy to do. If you're watching this on YouTube, if you leave comments down below and hit like, or dislike if you didn't like it. Uh, either way, 
um, that again helps uh, show that people are interacting with the video and helps this interview plus others get discovered. All right, but if you're really loving the podcast and you want to step it up a notch as far as supporting it, please check out Patreon. That's P A T R E O N dot com forward slash Maker Mom Podcast. There are four tier levels there's a one, three, and five dollar tier level that come with different levels of merchandise. And then there is a $30 tier level, which will make you an official sponsor of the podcast. And so you will get your own little ad segment within the podcast. And that is pretty recent, pretty new. All right. So that is always welcomed. And I really feel like the crew over on Patreon is a tribe. Um, and I continue to strive, don't always succeed, but continue to strive to grow it more and more as a community versus just uh, supporting the podcast. So know that uh, if you go over there, you will be considered part of the maker community for Maker Mom Podcast. All right. And then lastly, uh, you can just plain outright get some merch. So if you head on over to my store under my Freeman Furnishing store, that is where I design and make furniture. That's freemanfurnishings.com forward slash shop apparel and there is the maker mom tea and currently the version that is available there has the mom squad listed on the back which is the first 65 moms that were interviewed for the podcast so expect to see that change probably in november december of uh 2020 this year uh to update to include more moms all right um yeah Thank you for listening or watching whichever one you are doing. And I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. Hope you get to make something and I will see you next week.